The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. We all know the importance of money in our lives. Economists, though, recognize that money is an extremely important institution in an economy, enabling a much greater extent of trade than could ever be accomplished by a barter. And the development of money also allowed the emergence of banking and finance, which is uh, another institution that's a tremendous boon to modern prosperity. Countries today have currencies or monies that are put out by their national governments. And these currencies are managed by institutions known as central banks. In the United States, our central bank is the Federal Reserve. Central banks control the money supply and try to regulate money, credit, and finance in ways to improve economic performance. The Federal Reserve has been granted considerable independence to accomplish these goals, as well as a rather revered place within the economics profession and even within the economic theory. But has the Federal Reserve accomplished, accomplished its lofty goals and succeeded in improving our lives? Joining me on eConversations today to discuss these questions is an old friend and colleague of, of ours and a frequent guest on the show, Dr. Dan Smith. Dr. Smith earned his PhD in economics from George Mason University and taught at Troy for seven years before moving to Middle Tennessee State, where he's now the director of the Political Economy Research Institute and was recently promoted to the rank of professor. Dr. Smith has published dozens of academic papers and policy papers, and today he's going to join us to talk about a new book that he's co-authored. It's titled Money, Rule, and the Rule of Law. Well, welcome back to the show, Dan. Thank you very much, Dan. It's a pleasure to be back, and uh, you know, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Well, it was great to have you on. Now, this, this book was co-authored, so if uh, you, you could take a moment here to tell us who you wrote the book with, because you know, we'll be talking to you today, but you do need to sh share some of the credit for this book. Absolutely, yeah. I, I owe a huge debt to my, my co-authors, Alex Salter, who's at Texas Tech University, the Free Market Institute there, and Peter J. Becky, who's a professor at George Mason University and affiliated with the Mercatus Center. Um, both, you know, we, we had a research project that was collaborative um, between us, and, you know, over a decade of research, we realized we had a unique perspective, and then we're happy to put it in a book format. And so let's let's get into this. But I mean, before we start getting into too much about like monetary policy and central banking, I want to start by talking about like, well, today we have monies that are created by governments, like the U.S. dollar and, and uh, national currency is often seen as like a important part of sovereignty. Like when a nation becomes independent, they start issuing their own, own money. But governments didn't create the first monies, did they? No, they did not. In fact, I, you know, I go back to Adam Smith that people have a propensity to truck barter and exchange. And of course, one of the problems with barter is that you know it's really inconvenient. You have to find someone that wants what you have, and you have to find you know you have to want what they have. So people naturally gravitate towards um, goods that have uh, wider demand. 
Um, so, you know, throughout human history, it's tended to be gold and silver um, that they started to use things that, that more people broadly accepted. So I don't have to find someone that wants what I have and I have to want what they have. I could just exchange with the first, you know, someone that wants what I have and then use a more uh, commonly demanded good to exchange for that. So people gravitated towards things throughout different, uh, different times in history. You know, there's seashells and salt during the Roman Empire. On modern day um, prisons, you see, you know, it was tobacco before that was uh, regulated out of prisons. Now I think it's stamps. But people gravitate towards something that is commonly demanded to use as uh, to facilitate exchange. Um, there, there's nothing uh, necessary uh, that's essential for government to step in the process and say, hey, this is official currency. People automatically gravitate that towards that. You can even see that with children trading candy. Right, you know, the, the more popular candy ends up being the exchange uh, rate. Mega becomes a medium of exchange, uh, so it's it's something that even kids understand fundamentally. And but then governments did sort of get in on on this uh, process at some point and sort of like took it over in effect and sort of said, well, we'll we'll supply you the money, right? Yes. So, yeah, of course, uh, kings were sitting around and seeing these uh, typically private mints at this point in European history um, issue out currency and, and they're making they're making some profits doing so. And of course, kings look always looking for a source of revenue for their next war um, said, well, how about I grant monopolies to these private mints? Um, to exclusive uh, geographical region and they'd auction them off and get a cut and eventually they even cut out the the, the private company altogether and said, you know what, I'll just take over because uh, they saw the power of having essentially a printing press controlled by the government, right? Because there's, um, for example, in modern day America, it costs about five cents to print a U.S. dollar. But when the it's printed, you could spend it and get a dollar's worth of goods and services. So uh, King saw that as a potential source of revenue, just like taxation, except this was more hidden uh, as an inflation tax. And, and it's important to point out that when, as people develop money, or even you, you and I, or, or, or our viewers today, when we, when we possess money, we possess it because we traded something of value to get that that money. And and like you know, counterfeiting or inflation, in effect, sort of comes in and undermines this sort of system of of social cooperation that's that's embodied here in money, right? Yes, absolutely. Uh, printing currency beyond um, what's demanded by the public to hold currency, uh, their demand for money, or to, to replace, you know, worn-out currency or you know, you know, increases in population, can be considered essentially counterfeiting money. It reduces the value of, of the money in everyone's pocket, and therefore acts just like a tax. Um, it's no different than an explicit tax, except it's a little bit harder to trace out who it actually falls on. And I think also it's a lot easier for wealthy individuals to avoid the tax because they're able to, to afford the tax accountants and lawyers that can shelter their, their uh, investments away from inflation, whereas the, the, the ordinary person, um, their, their life savings are a lot harder to, to shelter from inflation. So today, you, you know, we don't really rely on the, the uh, treasury and the printing press to, to generate our money. It, it, it ends up being uh, the, the Federal Reserve, our, our U.S. Uh, central bank, that in effect controls uh, the, the money supply for us. So tell us a little bit about the history of the Federal Reserve and then also sort of like what a, a, a central bank uh, is supposed to be doing in, in, in our system. 
Yeah, so the, the United States and the United States, the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, um, same year as the, the income tax was implemented. Um, and it, you know, the, 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 the goal was to provide a, a, a general, um, you know, accepted medium of exchange for the whole country and to, to regulate it um, uh, through this independent organization. Um, remind me of the last part of your oh, question. Like, so, like, so what's uh, the function of central banks uh, in, in terms of, yeah. you know, a little bit about how they create the uh, money and, and can manage the money supply? Yeah, yeah. So the, their um, their whole purpose is to provide general general liquidity to the market, and it actually goes back to uh, Walter Badgett um, back in the the 19th century, where he outlined specific rules for for a central bank to follow. Basically, there's times when a financial sector, important financial institutions that are solvent, they they have the long term assets to that outweigh their liabilities, but in the short run. Their um, long-term uh, assets are like mortgages that will be paid off over several years, right? So if there's a lot of people that get, you know, you know, it's a crisis situation, they get doubtful about the bank, they want to pull their cash out, there could be a run on the bank, and the bank would not have enough liquidity at that time to give the, all the money to all their depositors, even though they're solvent. So the whole mm -hmm. purpose of the central bank at, through, through this mechanism being a lender of last resort is to provide general liquidity to the market uh, in order to prevent such bank runs. And so, so that's sort of like the, what the Federal Reserve was created to, to step into the market and, and begin to, uh, to do in, in 1913. So, you know, the, there's another thing that we talk about, like how governments got around uh, to control money, but another element that you talk about in terms of the, the rule of law, the rule of law and, and uh, it's what we consider classical liberalism or the, the tradition of liberalism in, in political theory uh, also sort of changed the relationship between the nature of governments or rulers, uh, you know, and, and the people. And I think, you know, to some extent, you, what you're saying is that money needs to be considered within this whole general liberal or, or rule of law framework. So tell us a little bit about liberalism and, and then how that might apply to money. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, liberalism, we're referring to, um, you know, you could think of it as classical liberalism, um, is a general appreciation for economic freedom and civil liberty and wanting to ensure that certain foundational principles of a free society are embedded in a constitution rule of law framework. And um, largely that's been adopted. We, we understand that there's, there's certain rights like freedom of speech, freedom of religion that cannot be infringed upon even by a democratic majority. But it's really unique. Um, central banks, for whatever reason, have, have historically, you know, they've existed um, for a long time. Um, it, it, that, that rule of law framework and that, that liberal revolution failed to, to, to reach them. And despite the fact that money is a foundational principle of a free society, one of the most important, if you look throughout world history, such as like the fall of the Roman Empire, the French Revolution, Hitler's rise to power, Great Depression, hyperinflations around the world, it should be, we argue, treated as a property, money should be a property right of citizens rather than a prerogative of central bankers. And therefore it deserves to be enshrined in the constitution and protected in the constitution alongside other fundamental rights that we appreciate in a free society. So I guess one way to think about this is in practice, what we've done is we've created this central bank and given them a lot of discretion to 
run the money, in effect, sort of manage the money supply and our financial system in a way to hopefully make us better off as citizens. So I guess one way to approach a, a big part of what you're, you're doing in your book is to and ask the question, has the Federal Reserve actually succeeded in, in this uh, basic underlying mission of, of trying to make the economy work, somehow work better? Because if they did, then we could sort of say, like, okay, they're doing us a favor by, by helping the economy you know, work in a, a smoother fashion. So there's a lot to get into here, but I guess we'll just start. I was like, has the Federal Reserve succeeded in this basic mission? So people are often surprised by my answer, but um, there's actually good evidence that the Federal Reserve did not improve monetary stability or macroeconomic uh, stability compared to even flawed institutions in the United States prior to the establishment of the uh, Federal Reserve. Um, and uh, we argue in the book that this is for two reasons. One is knowledge problems. So what the, Fed, the, the Federal Reserve is trying to do is adjust the supply of money in response to changes in the demand for money. But there's no way for central bankers to actually know what the demand for money will be, especially if you account for implementation lags. It takes several months for monetary policy effects to actually work its way through the economy. So they're trying to predict eight to nine months ahead of time what the demand for money will be with changing regulation, changing psychology, um, changing demographic trends, new financial products. I mean, sweep accounts actually fooled the Fed um, back uh, when they were introduced, and those seem like pretty tame uh, financial instruments compared to some of the things we're seeing today in crypto or non-fungible tokens, ways that demand for money manifests itself in ways that are unpredictable to, to central bankers. So we, we argue there's knowledge problems that central bankers face in trying to adjust the supply of, of currency to the demand for money. And thus far, they're, they're tending to create monetary disequilibrium, which undermines the efficiency of the price system. And if you believe in a free market society, like I do, and free enterprise is the what drives that is the price system free uh, prices and profit and loss that you know guide investors and convey information through the economy if that if there's a disjoint there between money supply and money demand it's not going to be as effective unless you're undermining the uh, efficiency of capitalism the second problem they face is incentive problems even if central bankers knew the appropriate policy to pursue do they have the incentive and we argue that no they get um, external pressure from the executive branch, from legislators, from special interest groups such as Goldman Sachs. And they also face internal bureaucratic pressures as uh, you know, as a bureaucracy itself that faces inertia, groupthink, um, uh, and, and other bureaucratic tendencies like budget maximization and mission creep as well. Um, so due to the knowledge and incentive problems, we argue that central banks have not improved upon um, the performance of uh, other institutions, and thus we shouldn't hold them sacrosanct as, as necessary components for monetary stability. In fact, we, you know, there's a good argument that they generated the Great Depression and the financial crisis. Um, in, in which case, they, they, you know, we, we'd be better off possibly exploring other radical uh, changes to our monetary institutions. So, so let's get into that. You mentioned that there's a view that among some economists that perhaps the Federal Reserve could have been responsible for the Great Depression and the financial crisis. So let's start with the Great Depression because it was clearly an economic, it was probably the most defining single economic event in U.S. history because it's so different and so, so terrible. Tell us a little bit about how it is uh, this argument that uh, uh, some economists have put forth that the Federal Reserve was was responsible for this. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think the best way to explain this is actually through Ben Bernanke. In 2002, he attended Milton Friedman's 90th birthday party. And then he wasn't the chairperson of the Fed, but he was on the Board of Governors. And he said, in my official capacity as a representative of the Federal Reserve, we apologize. We caused the Great Depression. But thanks to you, Milton Friedman, we won't do it again. Um, and the, he was, of course, adopting Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's um, uh, historical work on the, on the cause of the Great Depression, which was that money was too tight. Um, or, or sorry, too loose. Or sorry, his argument is that money was too tight once the Great Depression uh, depression hit. If you combine it with the Austrian story, Austrian economic story, the money was too loose ahead of time during the 1920s. So first, money was too loose, and then it was too tight. And then here's Ben Bernanke, a couple years ahead of the financial crisis, saying we won't do it again. And then the financial crisis hits, and it happens again. And it's at least in my mind, in my co-author's mind, exact same story. Monetary policy was too loose ahead of the um, ahead of the financial crisis, and then it got too tight, causing the exact same uh, consequences. Of course, not as severe as the uh, Great Depression. No, the time about as uh, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz's argument about monetary policy becoming too tight in the Great Depression, that led to a huge wave of bank failures in the United States. And that was one of the things that I think probably separates the Great Depression from anything else before or since. This massive number, I think it was like 9,000 banks in the United States failed. And, and uh, you know, because Friedman and Schwartz were arguing that many of those banks were actually sound. And it is, a, in some sense, it is a dereliction of the Fed's duty that you'd mentioned before to, to provide liquidity to the system that, that led to those bank failures, was it not? Yes, exactly. Not providing general liquidity to the market when it was needed. And once again, we're, I'm, I'm not, you know, we had very smart people at the Federal Reserve then. Ben Bernanke is a very, in fact, if you're going to find a central banker, it's hard to find someone better than Ben Bernanke, right? He's, he's an expert scholar on the Great Depression. Um, you know, he studied this for years, well-intentioned. He doesn't seem like a person that's, you know, um, you know, has a sinister agenda. And yet, even he failed to to implement it. So it, sh- it shows the difficulty here, right? Of actual central banking, it, it's extremely, extremely hard for central bankers to get this right. And we argue it's actually um, due to the knowledge problems. It's actually impossible for them mm-hmm. to systematically get monetary policy right. We're always going to be generating monetary disequilibrium through a monopoly supplier of currencies such as the Federal Reserve. So uh, let's skip ahead then to the, the financial crisis. If you could go into a, a little bit more of the, the, the detail here, because I mean, it sort of played out differently than what we saw in the, during the Great Depression in terms of, you know, if anything, the Federal Reserve erred on the other side of bailing out uh, maybe some financial institutions that maybe uh, some people would argue shouldn't have been bailed out. But t- talk about a little bit about the lead up to that. Again, this uh, mistake that you, you mentioned in terms of monetary policy being too loose and then too tight. Yeah, so it started under Greenspan's Fed with monetary policy being too loose, um, driven by, by a couple different factors. But in general, uh, John Taylor, he's at Stanford University. Um, he, he, he refers to it in his book as getting off track. And he compares it to uh, a monetary policy rule called named after him, the Taylor rule, and shows that monetary policy was systematically looser than it would have been according to this policy rule that um, monetary officials had unofficially been following for for a long time. Um, 
so that ended up, um, you know, that looseness ended up manifesting itself in a couple different areas in, in the economy, especially in the housing sector. And then when things collapsed, um, they tightened up. And yes, they did provide pre uh, preferential credit allocation. Uh, for the first time in, in history, the Federal Reserve was bailing out specific uh, institutions, and it did this quasi through through the law. The way they did this is by creating a corporation, made in lane one, made in lane two, and made in lane three, to bail out these corporations, um, which, you know, they're not officially allowed to do this, so instead they created a corporation they entirely control to do this. Um, so I think it's a subversion of the rule of law, and while they were doing that, they kind of focused on bailing out these big players. They did not provide general liquidity to the market, and that tightness uh, we argue uh, contributed to the the severity of the financial crisis um, at that time. And and one of the things coming out of the uh, fiscal the financial crisis that that people have been concerned about was that the the Federal Reserve and the Treasury through their actions have. Uh, you know, created a lot of moral hazard in, in banking. This idea that banks are too big to fail now and they know they're too big to fail. So if you could ex explain a little bit about uh, what that means. Yeah, so I, I absolutely agree with that, that, that large financial institutions have been told, you're now too important to let fail. Well, that's like sending college students to Vegas and saying, look, we'll, we'll give you, uh, go ahead and gamble, anything you win, you get to keep, but if you make losses, we'll bail you out. So you're gonna increase your risk. The, the large financial institutions have every incentive to engage in really uh, you know, more risky investment than they otherwise would uh, because they know that there's this implicit bailout policy. Um, so that's gonna make our financial system less robust going forward. And it's not just the financial institutions, it's also corporations. So they're, uh, introducing the financial crisis was a commercial um, paper facility. This was short-term debt held by corporations to meet short-term liabilities such as payroll. It's a really inherently risky way for corporations to fund stuff like that. Um, and it, it hurt during the financial crisis. They were like, oops, this was a mistake, and they were in trouble. And rather than let them learn the lesson not to rely on that type of financing, the Federal Reserve created a facility and bailed out that market. So lo and behold, as soon as the financial crisis was over, they started doing that again, didn't learn their lesson. And then when it came to COVID-19, they had to reinstitute that, um, that facility. So now they expect it every time there's a recession. So our financial system is gonna just increasingly be um, less secure um, because of this policy and they're gonna we're gonna have to reintroduce it every time there's a downfall and I worry I know I'm skipping ahead to COVID-19 but I worry about that with the the state and local uh, facilities introduced during COVID-19 which provided preferential credit allocation to state and local governments um, that's gonna create a moral hazard problem there that I'm very concerned about well Getting away from some of the details of the Fed, you, another thing you talk about in your, your book is that your recommendation here about you know trying to put money under the rule of law isn't coming out of left field. There were three famous uh, classical liberal oriented uh, economists from the 20th century who also wrote a, quite a bit about monetary policy. And they all sort of like more, you know, move, moved in, in sort of this direction during the, the years of their writing about the Federal Reserve. So tell us about these uh, th these three giants and, and what they sort of got to. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, we, we this is actually one of the inspirations for this project because we, we started it 
right around 2011, you know, I was in grad school during the financial crisis, um, in, you know, outside of DC at GMU. And um, so it's it a, it an interesting topic. And we, um, Pete Bedke and I started looking at the writings of F.A. Hayek and Milton Friedman on um, monetary institutions. We noticed a change over time. They started their careers both arguing that, a, a federal, that the Federal Reserve was absolutely necessary and it could work and we just had to you know, get the technical specifics right. We had to improve our, our technical models and our data collection, and then we, uh, it would be fine. Uh, for instance, you could see this with Milton Friedman um, advocating for Arthur Burns, his uh, dissertation advisor, when he became chairperson of the Fed. Um, he was like, okay, finally, monetary policy is gonna be set right. We got an academic that knows things. I really trust this guy, he's got good intentions, he's gonna get it right. And then literally like eight months later, Milton Friedman has another op-ed um, where he's like, Arthur Burns doesn't know what he's doing. He's, he's, he's being crazy. Uh, he, he doesn't know what's right. Um, he's getting monetary policy all incorrect. So you could see over time, they got frustrated with the inability of Federal Reserve officials to actually um, improve themselves or restrain themselves um, under political pressure and also to kind of figure out the, the knowledge problems. So both him and Milton Friedman and F.A. Hayek turned in their, their lives and started actually critiquing the Fed. Um, Milton Friedman, by the end of his, his life, was actually um, argued, is somewhat of a joke, but he argued that we should uh, turn monetary policy over to a computer, take it completely away from the Federal Reserve. Um, F.A. Hayek actually turned to uh, what we call free banking, competitive currency, where we allow banks to issue their own currency and thus get rid of the Federal Reserve. Buchanan was uh, the other classical liberal we studied. He was actually more consistent over his, his, his life, um, but he was arguing for constitutionalizing money. So if money is a fundamental right, it should be embedded in the Constitution and protected as such, um, rather than um, allow an unelected and unaccountable, largely unaccountable bureaucracy, despite their you know, fancy Ivy League uh, PhDs to control uh, the levers of the economy through the Federal Reserve. So if you can, so what would exactly would this like constitutionalizing or bringing money under the, the, the rule of, of law entail? Would, the, would we do away with the Fed? Like, talk a little bit about this for us. Yeah, so, so we offer three avenues. One is a rule-bound Fed, such as um, it could be a more explicit and punishable for uh, deviation inflation targeting target okay. um, or NG, NGDP targeting, um, which I think would be politically feasible moving in that direction. It'd have to be really tight. Uh, the Central Bank of New Zealand had an inflation target, but then every time they missed it, they just changed the targets. Um, they had a punishment mechanism for central bankers that failed to meet that target, but it's never been actually enforced. So it has to be a real uh, rule that actually has punishment mechanisms, possibly reward mechanisms for doing the right thing. Um, the, the, the other thing would be to, to constitutionalize it, have a constitutional convention, add it to the Constitution. Um, that's a, a very difficult political process. Um, and then the third is, of course, to, to allow private um, banks to start issuing currency. We're already somewhat seeing this with crypto, so I think the, the public is kind of getting used to this idea, but crypto is still seen as more of a investment vehicle rather than uh, a medium of exchange. But if you legalized, um, you know, private, you know, private corporations allowed them to issue their own competing currency against the Federal Reserve, um, it could create competition that I argue would improve um, our monetary stability as a nation. 
And, and again, competition usually, in, in most of the cases across our economy, uh, leads to, to, to good results. So, I mean, um, it's sort of like uh, wrapping up here. I mean, like, you know, what, what would you say in, in terms of like a, you know, w w would be your, uh, your takeaway point? Or, or, I mean, I guess another thing to say is like uh, some co somebody could come back to you and say, like, well, maybe we just need to hire some more better economists at the Federal Reserve. And like, you know, maybe they could do it right if we gave them a little more in the way of resources or a little more training or a little more powerful computers. Yeah, so I, I think the, the knowledge and incentive problems we see at the Federal Reserve are no less, are, are no more solvable than the central planning problems we saw in, in the Soviet Union under socialism. It's just simply impossible, no, how, no matter how many computers, because the, the more computers we have and, the, you know, we get into, uh, you know, all four new, new quantum computers and everything like that, well, that increases the complexity at the bottom as well. It's not like just the central planners have it. Sure, if we had quantum computing and we stuck to an agricultural society, we could probably fairly well, you know, you know, if we stopped all innovation, we could plan the economy somewhat. Um, but that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to to to, to allow a, a innovative, constantly moving society to, to serve people whose preferences and tastes are constantly changing. Um, it's an interconnected uh, world, and that's just impossible for for any group of central bankers, no matter how well educated, uh, to be able to 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 control. Well, that, that's very interesting. And again, like I, I, I enjoyed your, your book very much. It's a, a very a, a fascinating. And I think I, I think maybe our, our rear, uh, viewers, you know, will have uh, heard a different perspective here. There's a different take on monetary economics than you might normally uh, hear. And we want to thank you for for sharing this with us. Absolutely, Dan. It's a, it's a great pleasure being with you again. Right, and thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time on another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. 